The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. So we're about halfway through this sermon series in Genesis, talking through opening statements. And and every week we've tried to give you guys a memorable, a, a, a short, sticky phrase to help get the idea to cement in your mind. So we've heard how God speaks authoritatively. He creates intentionally. He knows best. He provides generously. He pursues sinners and he gives mercy. If you're taking notes this morning, the sticky phrase, the thing that I want you to hear is that God judges justly. God judges justly. And through the course of the sermon, I'm going to give you four ideas that, that support this main idea of God being a just judge. So we've seen a couple weeks ago how Adam and Eve, their sin in the garden was like taking a stone and throwing it into a still pond. The ripples of that effect have gone out and through all history, through all of humanity, and yet God was gracious. He was kind. He did not kill them that very day. He gave them many years in the land. He gave them sons. He gave them daughters. And we're going to read, starting in Genesis 5, with God giving Adam and Eve another son. So let's start. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man... He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. So we've seen this idea that that men and women were made in the image of God, that by virtue of that we have our lives have value, we have dignity because God's stamp is upon us. Verse 3, Adam was 130 years old, When he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Adam's life lasted 930 years, and he died. So we're going to see here in chapter 5, we've got Adam and nine generations after him, this tracing of the family line through Seth. And every person, there's this repeated element. It gives the name. It gives the age at which this man became a father, names the son, mentions other sons and daughters. It gives their age at death. And then the addendum, and he died. Now, Holly and I, we have, we have three wonderful children. And one of the things that I most enjoy about being a dad is the bedtime routine. Like after you get all the crazy out of them and you actually get them in the bed, it's sweet. It's snuggle time. And the kids, they always want to have stories. Now, can you imagine if I'm telling a story to my kids and I say, and the brave knight, he fought off the dragon. He defeated that thing. And he's rescued the princess. He took her home. They got married. They lived happily ever after. And then they died. My girls would be like, no, Daddy, that's not how the, suppo- the story's supposed to go. That's not what's supposed to happen. Well, here, too, the author is, is clear. He, he's adding in this repeated phrase, 
and he died, and he died. He's highlighting, this is not how the story's supposed to go. This is not what is supposed to happen. So this takes us to our first point. God is a just judge because God speaks the truth. We saw early on in Genesis that God said, eat of all these trees in the garden. Have at it, this all for you, but of the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it because the day that you do, you will surely die. Then what happens? The serpent comes and he says, he, he begins to paint God as this stingy God, this God that wants to withhold good things. And he said, you're not going to die. You surely shall not die. It wasn't immediate, but death really came that day. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. It turns out, as both creator and sustainer of life, God really is the one best suited to give instructions for how to live. We see that Satan said, you shall surely not die, but God proved him wrong over and over and over in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5. So these chapters are proof that when God speaks, he speaks the truth, but Satan lies. But there's another reason that the author gives this addendum, and he died, and he died, and he died. The second point, God gives life. Look down with me at verse 21. We're going to see the example of Enoch. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then he was not there because God took him. Now what is abundantly clear as absent from this description of Enoch is when he died. He didn't die. He was a man that that lived this certain kind of life, and God took him. He called him up to heaven. So in, in a world where death is all around him, in a world where wickedness is growing and spreading, Enoch stands as an example and lesson for us that walking with God leads to life. Death need not be the final word in the life of the believer that walking with the Lord leads to life. So this expression, walking with God, it's also used of Noah in chapter 6. It's used of Abraham. It's used of Isaac. It, it speaks to a pattern of life, a pattern of life that's, that's driven by a certain set of values, priorities. Consider Micah 4, 5. For all the people's walk each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. Paul, in the letter to the Ephesian church, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So it was true of Old Testament saints that they had to walk with the Lord their God. They, had to, they were called to live 
distinctly from those in the nations. And it's true for us today that God has set his mark upon us by infilling us with his spirit and that can and must lead to a different set of values, a different set of priorities that changes the way that we live. One of the things that I've been talking with the college students about in the core class we've been meeting every week, we're looking at the gospel and how the gospel is like this this gem with multiple faces, and we're trying to turn this, this gem and see different sides of it. I'm trying to get the students to see that the gospel is more than that which just saves us from hell, but it it is that which is saving us now. And when the, when the New Testament authors talk about the gospel and the powerful grace of God, it paints this picture, this inevitable force that God is strong, he's mighty to save, and he will save. He will sanctify. He will mature believers to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. But the grace of God also calls us to strive after that, to pursue that, to long to see our lives conformed to that of Jesus. So church, look to Enoch as an example that you find life when you walk with God. Let's go on. We'll we'll begin reading in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful. And they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward. And when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them, they were the powerful men of old, the famous men. Verse 5, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and that he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind from whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky. For I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Our third point, I want you to see that God is a just judge because he speaks the truth, he gives life, and God sees everything. God sees the whole picture. So we see this unique thing that God in Genesis 1 and 2, he saw what he had made and it was good. The sixth day when he made Man and woman, he saw that it was very good. Now God is seeing again, and he is seeing wickedness. He's seeing that people are not just doing evil things, but they're dreaming up evil things to do. That every intention, every motivation, every bent of our heart is towards evil. So we see here a lesson about sin. That it not only pushes out wickedness, acts but it pushes out to us to dream up more. So God sees their actions. He sees their intent. Their hearts and minds are laid open and bare before him. And they were running not from evil, but to it. Now, we've got lots and lots of questions to, to address in this chapter. 
in this section. Who are the sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? This is a Hebrew word that even the translators don't want to touch. They just, we're just going to keep it Hebrew. You guys figure it out. Why is God regretting? What is, what is going on here? So let's start. Verse 2, we're going to see what it is that has God so upset, ready to, to act. Okay, so we read back in verse 2. The son, he saw that the sons of God had taken daughters of mankind as wives for themselves. Okay, so question one, who are these sons of God? There's a couple of theories. One is a very old theory that says the sons of God are in reference to angels, and not just angels, but fallen angels. Now, I think it's best for us to, re- to reject this notion for a number of ideas. One, there's nothing in the context that speaks about angels. In fact, there's nothing in the first six chapters of Genesis that talks about angels. So that piece is, is not explicitly clear. Why would the author use this phrase, sons of God, if he was talking about angels when it wasn't explicitly clear. What is clear is what Jesus says about angels, that they don't marry and they're not given in marriage. So I think it's best to reject the theory that the sons of God are fallen angels. I think a better theory, the one that comes from the context of the passage, is saying that the sons of God and the daughters of men are in reference to two family trees. Okay, to two family trees. The sons of God are the ones that we looked at very briefly in in Genesis 5. They're the line of Seth. Okay, the line of Seth. The daughters of men are in reference to what we talked about last week in chapter 4, the line of Cain. Now, if you remember, Cain and all his descendants, superstars at sinning, wicked they, they even put Lamech up on the poster, you know, like, he's our guy, and what does Lamech do? He boasts in being excessively violent. You insult me, I'll just kill you. You, have, you know, you think you're tough? Like, no, I'm, I'll show you I'm the tougher one. To contrast, if you, if you look in uh, Genesis 5, verse 28, there's another Lamech, a Lamech that comes from the line of Seth. The scriptures remember him as the, being the father of Noah, saying, This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands. So Lamech is is not the violent, cruel Lamech of Cain. He's one that that longs for God's peace and rest to come to the land. So what we see here, the one family tree, the line of Seth, the line that includes Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and Jesus. These are righteous people. And then the other line, the daughters of men, is in reference to Cain. So the context of the passage, when we see it through this lens, makes more sense. We've got the sons of God. We've got the sons of the line of Seth, those that are supposed to be set apart, those that are supposed to be walking with God like Noah had, like Enoch did. What are they doing? They're essentially willingly stepping out from under God's authority choosing to be outside of his will and marrying outside of the faith. We heard this from Pastor Brandon a number of weeks ago. We see this, these kind of warnings about believers, you must marry in the Lord. You must marry other believers. God sees what they're doing, and, and it's more than just 
a disobedience of marrying somebody outside of the faith, they're, they're turning their nose up to God and saying, you don't know what's best. You don't know the path to life and satisfaction and joy, and, and I do. And I'm going to take that path, and I'm going I'm to marry a beautiful woman who, who just happens to be wicked and evil and all these things. And, and so now we see why God is angry. We see that how the, the wickedness of the earth is growing and spreading. And these that are in the family, in the line of Seth, that they're supposed to be different, that they're embracing that. He sees it, and it cuts him to the heart. He's grieved. Aren't you thankful that God is not distant and unfeeling? That, that in the incarnation, we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. He's near to us. Yes, he is totally other. We are not like him, but God is, is with us. In the incarnation, we celebrate Jesus coming near, taking on flesh, and he feels these things. But when we talk about regret, how do we understand it? Like the idea of us having regret, man, that is a, that is a universal human experience. We can all think back to that time in college. We made this inexplicable decision. Like what was I thinking? That was a mistake. I regret that. We even think last week, like, man, when I ate that sketchy taco, that was a, that was a mistake. I regret that. When the scriptures talk about God and his regret, they're not talking about regret like that. They're, they're not painting the picture of a God who's like learning on the fly, okay? They're talking about God in a totally other way. So let me be clear. We believe in what the scriptures say about God, that he is a big God. He's never had need of a do-over. He's never had a bad day at the office. He's never been frustrated by any limitation of any kind. The, the word that the scriptures use to describe this perfect strength and wisdom and love and might is sovereignty. That means he is the king, he is the ruler, that there's nothing that happens outside of his knowledge and control. This reality leads a theologian of old, Abraham Kuyper, to say that there's not one square inch in the whole domain of creation that Jesus does not say, mine. God is sovereign. He is sovereign. There's no limitations. There's no frustration in his leadership. Let me take us to another passage in 1 Samuel 15. Here, God is going to say in verse 11, I regret that I've made Saul king. He has turned his back from following, and he has not performed my commandments. So we read a passage like this, and we think naturally, God's like, I, I picked the wrong guy. I put the wrong candidate into office. He's, he's been partially obeying me at best, and man, did I mess that up. That's not what the scriptures say. And even in the direct context of that chapter, verse 29 says, God does not have regret, for he's not a man. He's not a man. So then what is going on in our passage in Genesis 6? How can we simultaneously hold up the sovereignty, the perfect strength, wisdom, love of God, and understand his regret? 
think about it. Many of you are parents, okay? So on my street, I've got great neighbors. Great neighbors over here, but we don't have hardly any kids in the neighborhood. So my kids, what they love almost more than anything are these arranged play dates. They'll grab a hold of this, and they're like, can we play with this family? What about this family? And they're just, you know, they're wearing us down. They're wearing us down. So I've learned, I try to get as much mileage out of this as possible. I'm like, yeah, you can have that play date if you do all your homework and if you take this debacle of a bedroom and bring some order to it and if you walk the dog, you know, here are the terms and conditions. You got to click yes, I accept, and then we'll, we'll, do the, we'll do the play date, all right? Now what happens? It comes time for that play date to go down. I look around, untouched homework on the table. There's still smoldering ruins of a bedroom untouched, right? What, what am I to do? I've only got one choice as a parent. I've got to say, honey, I love you, but you did not do what you said you were going to do. Therefore, there's not going to be a play date. And oh, man, their feet are going to get like cinder blocks. They're so heavy. They're going to storm off. And then there's going to be this, this separation. There's going to be alienation between me as a father and my loving kid. Now, I can look at that one singular event, my decision to keep my word, to say, no, you can't go to the play date. I can, at the same time, affirm that it was right and good, and I can look at it with a regret that alienation came as a result of it. If that is possible in our finite hearts and minds, how much more so in the infinite heart, infinite wisdom, infinite love of the Father, to look at his creation. Yes, you are the crown of my creation. Yes, your creation is still very good. But I regret what has happened to my people. It grieves me. It cuts me to the heart. And so in his sovereignty, in his perfect wisdom, in in the foreknowledge that this was going to happen, God is grieved that men and women from the line of Seth, those that should be walking with him, were actively disregarding him. He's grieved when he sees his sons choosing sin instead of finding joy in the Lord. And so church, once again, this should be a warning and an example to us. The decision is made here. God says, I, I can't dwell in flesh forever. I'm going to give him 120 years, but we're going we're to start fresh. And man, this seems harsh, right? Like, wow, God, you're going to wipe out all, everything? You're all, get, back in the, get back in the passage. What does it say in verse 5? What's true of humanity here? Every inclination of the mind, nothing but evil all the time. Maybe a better question is, how has God bore with them this long? How has he given them this much time? How has he given us so much time? Don't we deserve such punishment as well? And yet, we see in verse 8 that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Favor of God. He walks with God. Enoch walked with God. How did he find favor? Hebrews eleven seven says that he found it by faith. By faith, he walked with God. So this is not about 
Noah keeping the law, abstaining from this list, doing all this. This is before the law had even come. He's finding his joy and satisfaction in the Lord. The text says that he's blameless. This does not mean that he was perfectly sinless. We'll see in a couple chapters how, how Noah blows it big time. Noah is an example and a model for us, though, because he says, God, whatever you say, even these instructions you're giving me about building an ark to prepare for rain and flood, like, I don't know what any of those things are, but by faith, I'm going to obey. Whatever you say, I believe it, I trust it. He believed God. So consider the difficulty of his of his, this task, the, the, the difficulty of his faith that Noah followed God explicitly for 120 years in the building of this ark. He, and again, he was doing something that did not make one bit of sense in, in the human eyes. Nonetheless, he says, yes, whatever you say, Lord, I'm on it, I'm doing it. Trusting God with every detail of our lives is difficult for us as well, if we, if we can admit that. We have, like Noah, we have the favor of God in Christ. But like Noah, we often might experience this favor of God leads to being unfavorable with people. The favor of God often leads to being unfavorable with people. Consider how, uh, you know, you might be working a good job in a good career. Things are going great, like you know, you got a good salary, you've got the, the, the medical benefits and a house, and like from the world's perspective, you got it all. And then God calls you to, to go overseas, and you've got people that come around and say, what are you thinking? You, you have everything now. Why would you give this up? It doesn't make sense to do this. Or, or maybe you're a young family, and you've got a, you've got a big house, and you desire to give to missions, but you're limited, so you say, you know what, I'm actually going to sell this big house, I'm going to downsize and get a smaller house so that I, so I can give more of my salary away, more of my resources to, to get missionaries to the nations. And you've got people saying, but how are your kids going to play if they don't have a playroom? Or, you know, like all these things, like it doesn't make sense. No, you're, you need to build your kingdom and get the most you can and, and the biggest and the best. Or or maybe you're a single person and, and God's called you to, to go to a hard place. You've called you to go to a, a nation to, to carry the gospel where they, they don't want you there. They're actively hostile to the gospel there where being a Christian and a missionary could cost you something. You're going to have people say, well, well, people need Jesus here in South Carolina too. It's often that being in the favor of God is going to lead you to being unfavorable with people. And people will try to talk you out of following God. It certainly led to, to Noah being ridiculed. What he was doing did not make sense. And yet, by faith, he walked with God. The God that saw the whole picture. Fourthly, we're going to see that God is a just judge because he is gracious. We see here that the, God, the grace of God towards the one man leads to salvation for all of humanity. God's grace was Noah's only hope, and it's our only hope. That by grace, Noah walked with God. He did not corrupt his way. And like Enoch, we see again that God gives life to those who walk with him. 
Look with me at verse 17 of chapter 6. Understand that I am bringing a flood, floodwaters on the earth, to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your son's wife. So here we see that God is both a promise keep he's promise making and a promise keeping God that he will preserve that's by his grace he is keeping a people for himself. So God is a God that speaks truth, he gives life. He sees the whole picture and God is gracious. Now there's going to be a couple of hurdles for us to clear. A couple things that are that are subtle and maybe even subconscious that we would say that we could reject this notion that God is a just judge. The first one is this this subtle idea that God's judgment of me is no big deal. God's judgment of me is no big deal. This is really an outworking of what we saw last week in Matt's sermon where he said that sin will always minimize itself. We're so quick, it's so easy for us to, to say, well, I'm not as bad as this person. She's worse than me. We, we minimize, we compare, we do these things. This is often coming from a poor view of ourselves and an even poorer view of who God is. We think of him like this sleepy old grandfather in a rocking chair who's winking at mischievous children that how can he just do that. Think about the, an, an example, an illustration. We've got investigators show up to a crime scene, okay? And at this crime scene, the investigators will find fingerprints, they'll find DNA, they'll find eyewitnesses and video evidence that this crime was committed by this one particular individual, okay? So all this comes to trial. The, the judge hears it and he says, you know what? We're just going to get rid of all this evidence. You're free to go. Wouldn't this be front page news? It'd be trending on Twitter. Everybody would be talking about the injustice of this moment. And the question would be, what kind of judge are you? Because you care nothing about justice. You care nothing about truth. And yet we think about God like one that can just wink at sin that he can sweep it under the rug. Paul talks about this this very idea in Romans 3. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Universal. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That is, this person that takes away wrath by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Do you see the problem here? You see the problem that that God cannot be a just judge if he's passing over sins? His reputation as God is on the line here. Friends, if you are new, to exploring the ideas of the Christian faith. If you're not a believer, I want you to to hear this clearly. This 
the central idea of the gospel, that Jesus stood in our place. Jesus stood in our place. And so what Paul is saying in Romans 3, that God the Father put the sinless Son in our place. The one that had no merit, no deserving of condemnation, judgment, that he put that, our sin, on him. And so, that God had divine, he had passed over former sins. Verse 26, it was to show that God's righteousness at the present time, that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me call you to look to Jesus as our substitute, that when you read the Gospels, the account of Christ on the cross, that he was not just being dramatic when he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, God the Father put the sins of the world on his son, and he was experiencing separation. He was experiencing God turning his back. Your sin and mine, that judgment that should have been ours was put on Jesus. And that changes everything for us. In our place, he stood condemned. Romans 8.1 says, now there's no condemnation left for those that are in Christ. Every one of our sins, past, present, and future, Jesus has dealt with that. Jesus was judged in our place. If you are outside of the faith, look to Jesus. And let me call you to respond. He says that, that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And friends, let me assure you that Jesus has more mercy for you than you have sin. This morning, respond. Now, in a group this size, there's no doubt there's a number of you that you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. You've been walking with Jesus for for years, and you say, yes and amen, I believe that Jesus as substitute is the hope of humanity, but I don't always feel it. I don't always, I'm, I'm weary. You know, I've been walking with Jesus all these years, and I'm still struggling with these sins. Is it, is it true for me too? Yes, weary brother and sister. Jesus still is your substitute. He still has more mercy than you have sin. So the first hurdle, the first kind of subtle, sneaky hurdle that we have to eliminate is to say God's judgment of me is no big deal. The second one, God's judgment of others is no big deal. Wow, if we're, you know, we don't, we would never say that kind of thing out loud, but if we're honest, if we look at our lives if we look at the practice of our lives, do we think that God's judgment of others is a big deal? This week I was reading of a, of a survey done in 1993 where among Christians, 90% of those said, yes, as a Christian, I believe that it's my responsibility to share the gospel. This past summer, on the 25th anniversary, they, they redid that survey. It dropped down from 90% down to 60% of Christians that say it's my responsibility to share the gospel. And an even lower, only 25% said I make it a regular practice habit to share my faith. 
If we look to the evidence of our lives, if I look to the evidence of my life, does it show that I think little of the judgment of God in others' lives? Turn with me to, to Luke chapter 16. Luke, Luke chapter 16, we'll see the example here from our Lord's teaching. Starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table. But instead, the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from there to you cannot. Neither can those that cross from there cross over to here. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house, because I have five brothers, to warn them so that they also won't come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, if, you, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. The reality is, there is an urgency in the need for evangelism. Men and women and children that die cut off from hope. If you reject Jesus, you have no hope, then hell is the eternal destiny. There are people groups with millions of people in the world that they do not know the name of Jesus. They have no hope. Romans 10 is going to ask this series of questions about these millions upon millions of people. How are they going to call on the name of the Lord if they don't believe? And how are they going to believe unless they hear? And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches? How are they going to preach unless they're sent? The church of Jesus, we are sent. We are the ones that are sent. So God is calling us to do more than live good moral lives before the world. He's calling us to speak in boldness of our hope in Christ, to make it abundantly clear that we're not trusting in our good deeds, but we're trusting in the finished work of Christ. The scriptures will call us ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ. So let me challenge you. What would it look like this week to take practical steps into that calling of being an ambassador for Christ and a, a minister of reconciliation. 
First one, earnestly pray for God to give opportunities to speak of Jesus. Earnestly pray for these opportunities to speak of Jesus. You're going to find when you begin to ask God for this and you begin to look for this, you're going to find that God gives you opportunities. You're going to find that your friends and your coworkers talk about things that are of major significance, things that Jesus cares about, things that the gospel speaks to. They're going to talk about loved ones, family members that are sick with cancer. They're going to talk about regret and lament in their own lives, how how things have just not gone how they wanted them to go. They're going to open up their life to you, and you're going to have opportunity to speak to Jesus. Secondly, you can earnestly pray for opportunity to speak of Christ. Pray for people by name. Pray for people by name. This week I got invited to a breakfast with some guys in my small group. I was super encouraged because they're sitting there asking, hey, that coworker you talked about last week, how are things going? Oh, thanks for asking. You know, this, this sort of thing happened this week. They're, they're talking about coworkers, friends, family members by name. I'm getting text messages from church members say, hey, please, please pray for this man. Pray for this woman. Their life is in shambles right now, and I'm begging God to save them. Every time I see them, I'm, I'm talking about the greatness of Christ. Church, this is what God is, is calling us to do. So pray for opportunities. Pray by name, and when you're with them, ask good questions and commit to being bold. Ask, tell me about what you believe. Tell me about your upbringing. What are some of the convictions you have? And speak to Christ in that. Church, I want you to to see, to remember that God is a just judge. He speaks the truth. He gives life. He sees the whole picture, and he is gracious. Friends, this kind of judge, this kind of God, the kind of God that is willing to put forth his son and put our sin on him, he is a king worthy of worship. He is the kind of judge that's, that's worthy of our lives. So as the band comes, I want to invite you to, to consider the gracious offer of God in the gospel. Where the, the scriptures say that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you want to talk to somebody more about about this faith, who Jesus is, I would love to talk to you. I will be down front. And church, remember, we serve a God who sees all. We see all. So be encouraged that that you're striving to honor him with your life. You're, You're striving to make much of Jesus. And even though it's tough and you feel uh, awkward and clumsy in it. God sees all. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We thank you for, for the fact that in you is truth and life and perfect justice. And we thank you, Lord, for the way that you have demonstrated the seriousness of your judgment on sin by substituting, by putting forth Jesus as as a substitute, as the the Lamb of God in our place. Father, I pray that 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 bedrock faith of belief would be true of everyone this morning, that we would put all of our confidence, all of our trust in Jesus. And that, Father, that the, 
the new life that you bring, that, Father, that it would motivate us, that, that we would consider those around us, that, Father, you would grow our love for our neighbors, that it would translate into both displaying the greatness of Christ and declaring his greatness. Lord, would you, would you shape us and make us into a people who are increasingly like Jesus and speaking of him? We thank you for it in Jesus' name.